This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So if I could write works of history, like anybody else, the person I most admire is the the British author Peter Ackroyd, who has written his share of fiction and some poetry, but is mostly known for his nonfiction, and lately his uh, multi-volume series on a history of Britain itself. One of my favorite books, probably my favorite book of his, is just called Albion, The Origins of the English Imagination. And it's just incredible um, to be able to write this way. In a sense, uh, one could spend a long time learning to write academic history, and that's necessary to do. But in another sense, uh, how valuable it is to be able to convey the complexity and the beauty of the past uh, in a way that is meant uh, for a popular audience. I think this is just incredible, what Peter Ackroyd does. This is chapter five in his book, Albion, and this is a chapter about the Venerable Bede, as well as uh, aspects of Anglo-Saxon England. The Venerable Bede was born in a small and obscure village near Jarrow in Northumbria in or about the year 672, and nothing is known of his parents except that according to early commentators, they were of humble origins. He was not the first English writer whose modest beginnings spurred an ambition and aspiration towards great achievement. At the age of seven, he was taken to the monastery of Wormouth. Someone must have recognized his abilities, therefore, and caused him to be enrolled in what was then an orthodox course of education. At this early age, He began to memorize the Latin psalmody and hymnal with the help of an Anglo-Saxon gloss so that he might participate in all the divine offices of the monks. He then began to work upon Latin grammar and metrics, so important for the understanding of plain chant. He suffered from an impediment in his speech, however, but he was cured while writing about the miraculous relics of St. Cuthbert. This personal experience should be recalled when examining his many descriptions of miraculous healing, which purblind readers have ascribed to credulity or superstition. He was educated under the tutelage of Abbot Benedict, and later of Abbot Kielfrid, both of them important figures in 7th century England. The young oblate was transferred to the neighboring monastery of Jarrow, 
where he was to remain for the rest of his quietly exacting life. At the age of 19, he became a deacon, and the fact that he was appointed some six years before the customary time suggests that he was already notable for his learning. He was ordained priest at the age of 30 and, by his own testimony, then began his commentaries upon the Bible. From that time forward, he rarely traveled beyond the confines of the monastery, and he never left Northumbria. He was one of those English writers of whom it can confidently be said that he saw the universe within the context of a specific geographical place. Like William Blake and John Bunyan after him, he was granted intimations of the spiritual world upon his own spot of earth, and the writing poured forth as from a spring. At the close of his Historiae Ecclesiastica Gentius Anglorum, Bede added a short autobiographical passage in which he declared that for almost thirty years he had labored in his cell and had produced a rough calculation of some sixty-eight, quote, books, including commentaries upon Mark and Luke, as well as Isaiah and Daniel, histories of the saints and books of hymns and epigrams, histories and textbooks on poetry and chronology. It was a noble achievement. His life, his was a life devoted to reading and chanting, writing and teaching, Although he was well aware of events in the outer Anglo-Saxon world, with the death of kings and the rivalry of abbots, nothing could affect his dedication to his constant and assiduous work. He might almost have been born a scholar and writer, and he persevered in this course until the very close of his life. The remains of Jarrow still stand, with stone walls, small squared windows, and carved stone. The dedication stone, marking its foundation in 685, can be found in the wall above the arch of the chancel. Housing some 200 monks, Gerald was a large foundation which, according to Benedictine rule, had independent status as a house of prayer and learning. Something of the old tribal structure remained, with an abbot, normally of royal lineage, ruling his band of brothers as chieftain to the community. On the abbot's death, the leadership of the monastery was given to one of his kinsmen. Thus, the society within the walls of the religious establishment copied the wider governance of England. The Latin word for town, civitas, was in turn applied to monasteries, but just as the observance of Celtic, that is, British, Christianity, were also being supplanted by the Benedictine, that is, continental rules of the Anglo-Saxon monks, so the ethos and purpose of English monasteries were slowly being transformed. A letter of beads to Egbert, the Bishop of York, condemns those bishops, quote, given to laughter, jokes, idle tales, feasting, and drunkenness, end quote, who are at once lazy and unlearned, and he denounces those who purchase monasteries in order to fill them with their own followers and concubines. All these abuses the Benedictine rule was designed to extirpate. There were, of course, centers and occasions of Celtic piety, particularly within the Hermetic tradition, 
But the ancient order of faith had degenerated through the very fact of its longevity. The Benedictine dispensation was in turn responsible for, and responsive to, a fresh movement of devotion to learning. It is the single most important context for the transmission and preservation of Anglo-Saxon literature, Anglo-Saxon literature being Beowulf on forward, all the alliterative stuff that I have mentioned uh, loving so much. There was a common dormitory and common refectory at Darrow, at Jarrow, but Bede, given his high occupation as commentator and historian, was granted a separate hut or cell of stone in which to live and work. Situated somewhere to the south of the principal buildings, between the church and the river, it was approximately ten feet square with a wooden screen separating the space for prayer and meditation. In the area adjoining the lay, perhaps, in the area adjoining lay, perhaps the codices upon which he worked. Bede would have recited the divine office each day, but whether he engaged in the normal routine of husbandry and field labor is open to doubt. There must also have been a large scriptorium which he visited and used each day. Here, a few monks would be engaged in translation, transcription, and manuscript illumination, preparing the word of God and contributing texts for a select and devout audience. And here, again, lie some of the origins of English literature. And stories like this are really a corrective to those people who uh, despise religion or despise Christianity in particular um, and want nothing to do with the study of it or even of its history. Um, it is unavoidable, and especially in this case, it does lead to what we call English literature. It is right there, uh, whether we like it or not. Um, the monastery, with its scriptorium, was truly what King Alfred called, at a later date, a house of knowledge. In Anglo-Saxon literature, there are accounts of burnished books, inscribed in letters of gold and covered with precious jewels. They are treasures of gold and godweb, designed to illumine and glorify the scripture, but also, powerfully, to impress the sensibilities of the pagan English. In themselves, they become sacred objects. Water used to be poured over the Book of Duro before being collected and given to ailing cattle. The Codex Amiatinus was created at Jero, and the skins of 1,550 calves were required in order to provide the parchment, and two men were needed to carry it. It served as a reliquary or casket, as well as a text. Sometimes, too, the book would speak, quote, The bird's feather often moved over my brown surfaces, sprinkling meaningful remarks. Sprinkling meaningful marks, end quote. The art of illumination makes the English tradition paradigmatic of the whole Western spiritual tradition, which, unlike that of the East, favors learning rather than looking. The parchment would have been tanned and then scraped with a knife before being smoothed with a pumice stone. It was whitened with fine particles of chalk and then ruled with lines before pen and ink were devoted to its illumination. The scriptorium itself represented, quote, contempt of earthly things, end quote. 
a sacred concept of writing, which survived until the 20th century and into the poet W. H. Auden's Cave of Making. Yet, the world kept on breaking through. There are marginalia, or doodles, upon the edge of Anglo-Saxon manuscripts, which provide some evidence of circumambient life. A dog trots across the bottom of one page of Andreas, a long poem on the ministry of St. Andrew, while a later page is marked with the half-erased name of Eidgith, or Edith. In the margin of another manuscript are found the words Rit thus augment, read aweg, elf mer paterfox, the wilt swigen elfrechild, which may loosely be translated as, write like this or better, right away, elf mer pata the fox, you will flog the boy elfric. Pata is the teacher, and elfric the pupil, set to work upon transcription. Ride away may suggest the child's longing to be gone. There are passages in Bede's Historia Ecclesiastica Gentius Anglorum which also evoke the true nature of the Anglo-Saxon world, and of its monasticism in particular. One of them concerns the departure of the abbot of Monkwearmouth, Kilfred, in the final pilgrimage on a final pilgrimage to Rome. On Thursday morning, the 4th of June, the year 716, he stood upon the altar of the monastic church with a burning censer in his hand. He bade the monks farewell and gave them the kiss of peace, but the sound of loud weeping from the assembly interrupted the chant of litanies. An age of violence was also an age of ready emotionalism. He and the brethren then advanced in procession to the bank of the weir, where the monks fell upon their knees, and he and a few close companions boarded the boat. Quote, the deacons of the church embarked with them, carrying lighted candles and a golden cross. After crossing the river, he venerated the cross, mounted his horse, and rode off. Quote. There is revealed here, in the carrying of the golden cross and the lighted candles across the river, an intrinsic respect for ritual and display. In a world racked by storms of every description, where life itself may be short and harsh, the glowing gold and the candlelight afford a fleeting vision of sacredness. The quiet life of the Venerable Bede was succeeded by a no less peaceful death. In his sixty-third year he knew that he was dying, he continued to teach his monastic pupils, but spent the rest of each day and most of each night in song and prayer. He chanted the Latin scriptures and repeated by heart many old English poems, perhaps those that he had learnt as a child near Jarrow. But when he reached the words of one antiphone, which says, Do not leave us orphans, he burst into tears. His pupils wept with, with him, crying even as they studied under his instruction, but until almost the moment of death he kept them at their work of dictation. Learn quickly now, for I don't know how long I shall live. Write quickly. Here is an indication of his fervor for learning. He distributed his few treasures, pepper, handkerchiefs, incense, 
and then he was told by one of his pupils that there was still one sentence to be written. Quote, write it then. It is written. Good. It is finished. And he sat upon the floor of his cell, singing until he died. So ended a life of incessant labor and prodigious learning. His reputation was unrivaled in Europe as well as in his own country. It seems right to me, a monk from Yarrow wrote, that the whole race of the English in all provinces, wherever they are found, should give thanks to God that he has granted to them so wonderful a man in their nation. The 7th and 8th centuries were, perhaps, the most learned period in the nation's history. I'll repeat that. It's a wonderful thing for Peter Ackroyd to say. Uh, not the Middle Ages, not when the cathedrals are going up, um, not, uh, not the Renaissance, of course, um, not the age of Shakespeare and later Milton and the beginning of the Royal Society and then uh, on up through um, Isaac Newton and apparently not the last hundred years either. The 7th and 8th centuries were, perhaps, the most learned period in the nation's history. The Venerable Bede was one of a number of scholars and clerics of impeccable, if somewhat insular, Latin scholarship. There was, in fact, such a literary phenomenon as Anglo-Latin, characterized, quote, by a lavish display of vocabulary designed to impress the arcane nature of its learning in obscure, learned-sounding words, such as archaisms, Greekisms, and neologisms, end quote. A style which haunts English prose in the work of such writers as Robert Burton and Thomas Brown. The 16th century term was euphuism, but there has always been an affection for it within the English imagination. It represents almost a deliberate parody of learning, or rather, a delight in ornate language and pattern, rather than in profound scholarship for its own sake. One of, the, one of its principal Anglo-Saxon exponents was, was Bede's contemporary Aldhelm, who composed epistles and treatises in an elaborate and sometimes obscure prose. He also wrote Latin verse in continuous octosyllables and continued the native inheritance by writing puzzles or mysteries or enigmata. You'll remember that if you go and find a book of uh, an anthology of poetry from the Anglo-Saxon, most of it will be filled with uh, bits and pieces from the huge collections of riddles that were composed in the language. Uh, had Aldhelm been educated in the Cathedral School of Canterbury under the tutelage of an African scholar named Hadrian, this salient fact alone, suggesting the range of scholarship and civilization existing in 7th century England, Hadrian had arrived with the Greek scholar Theodore of Tarsus Theodore was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury by Pope Vitalian, and together with Hadrian established a school which, according to Bede, quote, attracted a large number of students who studied poetry, astronomy, and the calculation of the church calendar, as well as Holy Scripture. 
Bede testifies to the efficacy of their instruction by noting that in his time there were still Englishmen, quote, as proficient in Latin and Greek as in their native tongue, end quote. In the ninth century, King Alfred lamented the loss of such learning, but such attainments would also be rare in the 21st century. The tradition of the cathedral school never entirely died, even in the worst period of Danish invasion, so that we can point justifiably to a continuous legacy of learning in England. It is the source, for example, of flating, or the scholastic contest, preserved in the wisdom literature of the Anglo-Saxons, by means of which two scholars would address each other upon a particular theme and practice all their skills of rhetoric. These same competitions were part of the curriculum in medieval schools and continued within the inns of court of the 16th and 17th centuries. It is a tradition which helped to create Tudor drama, that is, the drama of Shakespeare, itself often performed in the halls of inns, and thus the theatrical renaissance of the late 16th century, which of course includes Shakespeare and Marlowe and all the rest. Um, the texts of the Anglo-Saxon schools included the Evangelia of Juvenicus, the Carmen and Opus Pascal of Sedulius and Aratores de Actibus Apostoliorum, together with other works from the corpus of Christian Latin literature. Virgil's Aeneid was also widely known and quoted, as well as the work of other classical writers such as Lucian and Perseus. It is an impressive list for scholars of any period, but it provides direct evidence for the beginnings of the classics, the study of the classics in the English educational system, which I think since the writing of this book uh, has gone the way of all things. Uh, it is often remarked with some surprise that the administrators and politicians of the 19th century were accustomed to take quotations from or make allusions to the authors of classical antiquity. Yet as early as the seventh century, the English bishops and abbots who were the true administrators of the nation, were themselves equally capable of making reference to Ovid, Virgil, Cicero, Pliny, and others. There is, again, a continuity. And continuity, if anyone has read uh, Ackroyd's other books on the history of Britain, or his biography of London, or his biography of the, the River Thames, continuity is one of his favorite words. And finding continuity is one of the wonderful things that he does between the 8th and the 18th century, for example. Bede's library was itself formidable. It, contain, it contained more than 130 texts, of which we may assume that a preponderant amount came from the collections of Monk, Remouth, and Jarrow. The range of his reading was wide indeed, but his principal sources remain... Ambrose, Augustine, Jerome, and Gregory. In other words, Bede was placing himself directly and deliberately in the tradition of European Christian exegesis. The example of Bede and his successors provides clear evidence that the English nation was an inalienable part of European culture and society, 
as much a beacon of Western Christendom as Rome or Seville. English learning affected scholars upon the European mainland, but in turn, European art and literature came to Canterbury and Jarrow, Winchester and Ely, London and St. Albans. It was always thus. From the time of the Roman occupation, and perhaps earlier, England was an integral part of the culture and texture of Europe. In the year 314, the bishops of London, York and Lincoln, attended, attended a general council in Arles, while French ecclesiastics came to England to combat the English heresies of Pelagius. When Pope Gregory sent Augustine on his mission, this is a different uh, Augustine than the writer just mentioned, uh, when Pope Gregory sent Augustine on his mission to England in 597, a connection was established that was not severed until the submission of the clergy to Henry VIII in the spring of 1532. That is the year 597 to the, to the spring of 1532. The enterprise of the Greek Theodore and the African Hadrian has already been outlined. As Archbishop of Canterbury, Theodore also reorganized the administration of the English Church. When we consider, quote, Englishness, therefore, it is best to understand from what sources it springs. The traffic was not in one direction only. It has been said that Boniface, a native of Credition in Devon, had, quote, a deeper influence on the history of Europe than any other Englishman who ever lived, end quote. And I've wanted to write some kind of poem about this guy for years. This is an amazing story. Uh, Boniface's missionary work in Hesse and Thuringia led to his veneration as the Apostle of Germany. His was a cultural as well as a spiritual enterprise, and Anglo-Saxon texts or illuminations were deposited in the cathedrals and monastic foundations that he established in Germany. There was a common culture. When the founder of Monkwormouth and Jarrow, Benedict Biscop, traveled back to Northumbria after a period in Rome, he brought with him many rare books, as well as silks and panel paintings from Italy. He created a library at Wormouth, which became the most important center of learning in northern England. Bede could not have undertaken the tasks of his scholarship without the early benefactions of Biscop. Bede himself, in his Lives of the Abbots, describes the great mass of books of every sort with which Biscop returned, as well as sacred relics, many holy pictures of saints, and illustrations from the Gospels, which were placed around the basilica at Wormouth. Biscop also brought back glaziers and masons from the continent, and a chief cantor, or singing master, who taught the monks of England the rules of Roman plain chant. So at the same time as Bede was composing his ecclesiastical history of England, the joint monasteries of Wearmouth and Jarrow were being furnished and ornamented in the most modern European style. I mentioned at the beginning here uh, that this is fun stuff uh, written for a popular audience. I realize that reading this now, it, it, it could seem a bit heavy going, uh, but I love this stuff. I guess it's, I'm just a nerd for it. And part of it is uh, a strange nostalgia that I have for 
England and that I have whenever I visit there. Um, just an odd sense of uh, at some point belonging there. Uh, and the other thing too, I remember someone asking me after uh, I converted to Judaism, well, I guess you'll put away uh, all the stuff that, all the books that you have about Christianity. And this is, uh, and I laughed and said, of course not. And this is a great example of that. There are immense stories still to be told and still to admire, uh, especially in this case where, um, where a library of 130 books, uh, I think I have 130 books just down in my basement right now, and they don't mean nearly as, they mean an awful lot to me, but they don't mean nearly as much as uh, Bede's 130 books meant to him. What a, what a, what a different uh, outlook people had on books and literacy and travel even, or bringing something back from your travels when those things were very hard to attain and when um, I guess they weren't uh, treated so cheaply. I think even of travel, uh, it's, you can imagine people uh, may have assumed that it was possible that they wouldn't come back at all. So when they did and they had all these books and uh, learned people and new ways to sing and build, um, it's just incredible. Another, another two pages here. At the celebrated Synod of Whitby in the year 664, when the Celtic and Roman variants of Christianity were engaged in fierce debate, particularly over the dating of Easter and the nature of the tonsure or shaved head of the monk, the proponents of the dispensation were successful, of the Roman dispensation were successful. Among them, Wilfred, a nobleman from Northumbria, who had traveled extensively through the regions of the Roman Empire, delivered the following rebuke to the old Celtic or British cause, and he says, Do you think that a handful of people in one corner of the remotest islands is to be preferred to the universal Church of Christ, which is spread throughout the world? It was a defining moment, and under the aegis of Abbas Hilda, the convocation of Whitby turned England firmly in the direction of Rome. Wilfred's message was, in fact, characteristic of English Catholicism, and its sentiments were repeated by Sir Thomas More during his trial for treason in Westminster Hall in the late or mid-1500s or so. And he says, This realm, being but one member and a small part of the church, might not make a particular law disagreeable with the general law of Christ's universal Catholic Church. And of course, he's saying that after Henry VIII had his fun. Uh, Wilfred and Moore, separated by almost 900 years, represent an authentic English sensibility. Both men identified with a local area. Wilfred with, was a native of Northumbria, whose ministry was attended by the goodwill of the whole Northumbrian people, high and low, while Thomas More was a quintessential Londoner, admired and honored by his fellow citizens. And yet, both men considered their national identity within a larger force. Both men, incidentally, were also beatified and canonized. The history of cross-fertilization is a long one. 
and further examples may be adduced. In the 8th century, quote, books actually made in the British Isles appear to have been taken to the continent in quite large quantities, and they were copied locally as far afield as Italy and Spain. The same may be said of Anglo-Saxon sculpture. In Rome, there was a special Saxon quarter known as the Scolia Saxonum, and in the 9th century, King Alfred imported both craftsmen and scholars from the continent of Europe, and his successors continued his example. The monastic reforms of the 10th century, springing from Benedictine foundations of France and enjoining clear distinctions between the secular and spiritual life, in turn engendered a revival of monastic culture in England. Monks were invited from Fleury and Cluny to encourage those of native birth. The 10th and 11th centuries, as a result, were a period of vigorous activity. It is not surprising, therefore, that, quote, the presence in England of foreign scholars was perhaps never so marked as during the 11th century. Yet, one caveat may be entered here. In the Regularis Concordia of the late 10th century Council of Winchester, which effect effectively promulgating the monastic restoration of that period, the emphasis rests upon, quote, one rule and one country. There always was a recognition of native or national values. Anglo-Saxon scribes continued to use and develop a specifically English script while employing the Carolingian minuscule for Latin texts, a development which is paralleled by the expansion of Old English prose and by the continuing life of the ancient alliterative patterns of verse. It has likewise been supposed that there was a fairly reluctant acceptance of some styles and fashions, except in a number of more or less isolated cases, there was no wholesale adoption of continental modes. So there is, on the face of it, a paradox, or at least a disparity, between England as a part of European civilization and England as the burgeoning source of a native culture. The same conditions will present themselves throughout this book. There is, at this early stage, no need to reconcile them, except to notice the degree of absorption or assimilation present within the English sensibility. It has often been described as a mixed or mongrel kind, a hybrid like the people from which it derives, but it is distinctive precisely because of its willingness to adapt and adopt other influences. The sensibility is as heterogeneous as its literature, as varied and various as the grand houses or cathedrals which were constructed piece by piece. It has been said that its uniqueness lies in the sum of its differences, but the real process is one of adoption and transformation, where two hitherto incompatible influences, in the period now under review, they may be named the Celtic and the Classical, are somehow, somehow, amalgamated and thereby enlarged within a common sensibility. There is conflation and elaboration, not division and reduction. Thus, the architecture of the Normans was incorporated and transcended by the English Romanesque, a transformation described by one historian as occurring 
on the foundations established by Alfred Dunstan, Ethelwold, and others in Wessex. The origins of the English sensibility are once again traced far back. And as long as I'm here reading from Peter Ackroyd's book, Albion, I realize that I should probably just add the three pages on that he writes about Anglo-Saxon poetry, the Old English, the alliterative stuff that I've been talking about and that Peter Ackroyd just mentioned a few times in that chapter about the Venerable Bede. I've talked a few times in other episodes about the, the hold that this uh, alliterative poetry has on me. And I've even taken some time out to try and learn the Anglo-Saxon. And I realize in doing that, um, that I can't read it well enough out loud to truly know if the poetry I write in response is alliterative like these Anglo-Saxon poems. I don't know in that case if there really is a reason to copy it exactly. I've said before that there's almost no point in really in imitating a kind of poetry or a specific poet so much as it is a matter of trying to take what you get from them and putting it into the modern vernacular the modern way of speaking, whatever the current way of speaking is for the day. Or sometimes it's a matter of uh, taking what you've learned and turning it into something that can feel uh, artificial, artificial in a good way, something like like liturgy, which is uh, the language of everyday use raised slightly in a way that you would never speak uh, on a day-to-day basis. There's, there are ways to do this, but I don't think one of them, one of the fruitful ways to do it, if you're writing original poetry, is to just to slavishly uh, copy or imitate. When I came to write my long poems this year, or a sequence of short poems this year about Shakespeare, or in the voice of Shakespeare, I knew right away that it would be ridiculous uh, and impossible, really, to write those poems uh, in some sort of imitation of how Shakespeare writes his poetry. I had to do it in a way that sounded uh, elevated, but also intelligible, immediately intelligible to someone listening to it right now. Uh, there's a much larger difference here, however, if you're talking about translation. That is the problem with translation, isn't it? Do you translate something uh, accurately as to how the original sounds, or do you translate it in the way that I've just talked about writing original poetry? Do you try to make Dante sound like he was written right now, or about 100 or 200 years ago? Um, It's hard to to know quite what to do. 
But there is, uh, from the Anglo-Saxon translations that I've seen and read from and learned from and from the recordings that I've heard and learned a great deal from, I do think that every now and again, whenever I come to write this alliterative line, that uh, what I'm trying to catch is the sort of mournful, doom-laden kind of feeling in it. It's as if Faulkner was writing uh, back in 10th century England. And, um, but, and in any case, that's a, a tangent to get off on. This is what Peter Ackroyd has to say about uh, Anglo-Saxon poetry and its place uh, in English poetry up until right now to this very day. He says, in 1882, the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote, quote, I am learning Anglo-Saxon and it is vastly superior. It is a vastly superior thing to what we have now, end quote. And at a later date, W.H. Auden described his introduction to Anglo-Saxon literature at Oxford by saying, I was spellbound. This poetry I knew was going to be my dish. Auden also confirmed that Anglo-Saxon and Middle English poetry have been one of my strongest, most lasting influences. And he added that, quote, often some piece of technique thus learned really unchains one's own diamond quite suddenly, end quote. In the Anglo-Saxon phrase, it unlocks the word hoard. And listeners of my Seamus Heaney episodes will recognize that phrase. Shahini loved the phrase word hoard. William Morris translated Beowulf in the last years of his life, and there have been many attempts by other poets culminating in the translation of the epic by the Irish poet Seamus Heaney in the year 2000. It is as if it represented some kind of primal memory. The Anglo-Saxon inheritance can work in different ways, and one poem can act as the unacknowledged instigator or inspiration for a different form of perception. The theme of lonely pilgrimage in the short poem called The Seafarer, one of the elegies in the Exeter book manuscript, is the first evocation in the English language of a metaphor which haunts the English... Oh, pardon me, let me read that sentence again. The theme of lonely pilgrimage in the short poem called The Seafarer, one of the elegies in the Exeter book, is the first evocation in the language of a metaphor which haunts the English imagination. The image of the voyager alone upon the ice-cold and raging sea is like some scene from the beginning of the world, the Anglo-Saxon world's stormas and flodwagas, have surged through English poetry ever since, while sighs of transitoriness and exile have been exhaled for more than a thousand years. The expatriate American poet Ezra Pound was living in London when he translated lines from the seafarer in this way, on floodways to be far departing. He, his is a spirited and sonorous reenactment of the original, and exemplified his attempt to connect himself with an English tradition in order to both reinvent himself and to renew his own language.
It is one of the great strengths of the English imagination that it does not represent an exclusive or proprietorial gift. Like language itself, it is open to anyone. And if you go back to the readings that I did in my episode about uh, the poems I wrote about traveling to Orkney with my wife, um, I think I said there that those were the first, there's a handful of poems, I think four of them, where I take up something like the alliterative line of the Anglo-Saxons. And it was interesting that the only subjects that would fall into order, uh, fall into that alliterative order, were poems about uh, actually traveling, uh, being on, being in the plane, uh, going to Orkney or coming back from Orkney, and other poems from Bone Antler Stone uh, that fell into that line were about uh, uh, seafarers uh, trying to find the coast or of, of uh, new immigrants to what became Britain coming over from what, was, what would eventually be uh, the, uh, northern France. And that is really a way that I found quite unexpected of finding a way to uh, uh, grasp this inherited pitch uh, that, the that the alliterative line can offer. Uh, Peter Ackroyd goes on to say that Milton's poetry, John Milton's poetry, bears some relation to the seafarer too. In the Anglo-Saxon poem, there is a description of those who lived in cities Wingal, or flushed with wine, Wingal, I suppose. In Paradise Lost, the sons of Belial dwell in luxurious cities where they are flown with insolence and wine. It has often been suggested that the poet of Bread Street and Aldersgate was here memorializing the street brawlers, the hectors and scourers of his native city. But as he sits by his window, the candle glimmering in the dusk, an image of Anglo-Saxon brawlers also emerges. The English imagination has many mansions and many rooms. And there is another Miltonic connection with these English originals. Passages in Paradise Lost, completed by Milton in 1663, concerning the fall of the angels into darkness and the subsequent soliloquy by Satan, bear a startling resemblance to an Anglo-Saxon poem entitled Genesis B by scholars and tentatively dated to the mid-ninth mid century. In that early poem, Satan's first words, for example, are, Is this anega steda ungelic swaitha? Which are close in cadence and meaning to, In this region, this the soil, the clime, of John Milton. An early 19th century scholar, in reviewing both poems, wrote of a, quote, resemblance to Milton so remarkable that much of this portion of Genesis B might almost, might be almost literally translated. The biographer of Milton, David Masson, describes striking coincidences between notions and phrases. This might be construed as no more than scholarly supposition or source hunting. If such a resemblance exists, then it may arise simply from the consonants, or, one may say, the consanguinity between the English imagination, uh, within the English imagination itself. 
There are many examples of poets or dramatists who seem to have lifted material from their predecessors, but who have, in reality, only been led forward by the pressures and contours of the language itself. Once a sequence of words enters the vast sphere of language, it is always a potential line of expression for any later writer. The first one or two words will activate the entire sequence. But the case of Milton and Genesis B is more interesting. The manuscript was discovered by a 17th century scholar, Junius, who was in fact a close acquaintance of Milton's. Previously, Milton had poured over Anglo-Saxon sources and had written an enthusiastic note upon the divine inspiration of Cadman, the uh, supposed first English poet, Cadman, and he evinced a long preoccupation with the old English past. What is more natural and inevitable than that his friend Junius should read out to him and translate the creation poem which he had recently discovered? Satan's great speech of pride and bitterness might then find its way into the blind poet Milton's consciousness. It offers at least a plausible explanation for continuities between Anglo-Saxon poetry and the poetry of the mid-17th century. The seventh chapter of Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, in the seventh chapter of Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, the messenger Heike appears wriggling like an eel, with his great hands spread out like fans on each side. He's the Anglo-Saxon messenger, the White King explains to Alice, and those are Anglo-Saxon attitudes. The posture is indeed Anglo-Saxon, and can be seen in the late ninth-century cross of Codford St. Peter, and in the figure of King Edgar in the foundation charter for the new minster at Winchester. The position has in fact been described as, in essence, completely English. Carroll parodies it successfully, just as he parodies old English poetry in his lyric, The Jabberwocky, and here are two lines from that. "'Twas brillic and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave." Anglo-Saxon attitudes emerge almost everywhere. The fable in Old English translation Apollonius of Tyre appears in the poetry of John Gower as well as in Shakespeare's Pericles. The Old English antiphones of the Advent season were known as the Great O's because they began with O or Ela and are echoed in the 1608 text of King Lear, O, 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 O. The satire upon greedy and wasteful priests in Guthlock and in other Anglo-Saxon originals is taken up by William Langland and John Wycliffe. The sweet breath of St. Guthlock, just before his demise, issues from the mouth of Thomas More before his execution. And that's from the thing I just recorded a moment ago. The panther in the Exeter book, who shines brightly and is the image of Christ, re-emerges as the tiger of William Blake's lyric. And in T.S. Eliot's Garantian, there appears in turn Christ the tiger. The spiritual narrative of the Dream of the Rood, a devotional poem of the late 7th century, with its focus upon the material image of the cross, prefigures the 17th century meditations 
of George Herbert and Henry Vaughan. The weird, W-Y-R-D, or doom, of Anglo-Saxon poetry is matched by Chaucer's Exitrice of the Weirds in Trallius and Cressida, before being resurrected as Life's Doom in Thomas Hardy's 20th century epic poem, The Dynasts, 19th to 20th century epic. The conflict between tribal loyalties of revenge and the Christian pieties of forgiveness and redemption, so central to the Anglo-Saxon imagination, was reinterpreted again and again in Elizabethan and Jacobean tragedy. The great preoccupations of 9th and 10th century England were flourishing in the 16th and 17th centuries. Periods, quote, periods of a literary or historical nature do not succeed each other in neat chronology. They overlap and intermingle, fade and then flare up, so that we might call the history of the last 2,000 years, actually, the Anglo-Saxon period. Instead of asking what is modern about the Anglo-Saxons, Peter Aykroyd ends by saying, inquire instead what is Anglo-Saxon about the modern. And that is a wonderful three pages right there. Uh, I'll just close by saying that I'm pretty sure that... Um, that alliteration, that, that earthiness, that uh, uh, the, the, the sounds of the alliteration and the words that are alliterated, uh, the earthy words, the nature words, the, the weather words, uh, and also the dooming emotional uh, life and death words as well. Uh, the things that attract me to this kind of poetry is also the stuff that attracts me to uh, the stuff that I read here most often of uh, Seamus Heaney's poetry over this spring and summer, uh, Ted Hughes' poetry that I'm reading right now, and, uh, and I know both of them had a uh, uh, heavy time with the Anglo-Saxons. But also, in America, uh, the reason that Robinson Jeffers sometimes sounds like such an outlier and like such a grump, uh, so doom-laden, might be because even though he is out in Carmel Point in California on the West Coast, perhaps where he really is, uh, is dead center uh, in the middle of England in the 7th or 8th century. I'm going to have to check and see how closely he studied those things as well. But uh, a good hour here on 7th and 8th century England and its poetry and it's learning. A good time indeed. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.